short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Episode 87, Ray. 87. Wow. Well, in our last episode, we told some stories about, well, some first, uh, first-hand eyewitness accounts um, of uh, people who survived the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the reports of some journalists and uh, various people who went in afterwards. And we talked about the fact that um, all of the photographs and footage taken uh, immediately after the bomb and for several months after the bomb. Uh, some shot by uh, Japanese, some shot by Americans, was all kept hidden. It was grabbed by the Americans and thrown into a vault and hidden for decades from the Americans and, and people around the world, obviously, as well. Um, mm. we, we only got to see very limited black and white photographs of rubble and buildings, but none of the effects of the people. And for a very long time, the concept of radiation sickness was kept hidden from people as well and denied, in fact, by the media and the government, American media, government, military, as being Japanese propaganda about the atomic plague, that there wasn't, it wasn't a real, wasn't a real thing. And as we're going to see, the uh, general public, uh, the American general public, didn't see any of these newsreel footages for 25 years, but the U.S. military film was not shown for 40 years. So this is obviously a very massive cover-up of, of an incredible event that should have been put out there. Yeah, the military had long declared that with regards to the Japanese bombings, the radiation dissipated quickly and posed little threat to the soldiers that came in afterwards. They said, oh, oh, it would have disappeared up into the atmosphere. It's all fine. It's all good. Right. Um, A 1980 Defence Nuclear Agency report concluded, medical science believes multiple myeloma has a borderline relationship with exposure to ionising radiation. That is, there are some indications that exposure to radiation may increase the risk of this disease, but science cannot yet be sure. That said, there were other scientists that said, fuck yes, radiation from these bombs is going to kill a lot of people. But uh, oh, wow. there was still debate about it within the military medical community. And, and I just have to throw in real quick, as we see in today's headlines, and, and also with along with um, drugs and the, uh, the question about guns in America... As long as somebody on each side keeps the debate going, there's no final answer. You can always just say, well, this guy says this. Well, what about this or whatever? So as long as there's a debate, there's no answers or someone has information to refute. And so, yeah, just, you know, they're still refuting this stuff after after the bombings. And so no one can really come down and say definitively this is it. And I think that's a tactic that a lot of um, people with special interests use. Oh, without a doubt. Whether or not, yeah. I mean, that was happening in this case, I'm not sure. But 
1980, like, man, that's, that's 50, 60, 70, 35 years after the bomb. You can't tell me that they didn't have a fair idea at this juncture, 35 yeah. years later, that uh, radiation could cause cancers and things like that, after effects. I mean, Marie Curie died when? 100 years earlier from exposure mm-hmm. to radium? Um, surely they weren't that ignorant about the uh, effects of uh, nuclear radiation. But in all of those years too, thousands of American soldiers who had been to Japan and also who had participated in the hundreds of bomb tests that happened in Nevada and around the Pacific would also come down with strange cancers, very high uh, statistical ratios of those guys ending up with cancers and other uh, medical after effects. The Japanese government, meanwhile, repeatedly over those decades asked the US for the full footage of the Phantom film or the film of illusion, as it was called in Japan. Americans kept denying them access to it. Right. Um, there was an article about it that appeared in the New York Times in uh, 1967, May 18th, 1967, declaring in its headline, suppressed by the United States for 22 years, the film. Um, Now, it revealed that while some of the footage was already in Japan, because apparently what happened was (laughs) when the Americans were coming and grabbing the Japanese footage, uh, mm-hmm. In 1946, uh, one of the Japanese crews made a duplicate of the reel and hid it in a ceiling somewhere. Right. Um, because they were it, worried what were the Americans it, were going to do with it. Exactly. Yeah. And if I remember, it was black and white. There were no sound, but that's not the point. They've got these images because they had gone through, you know, days after and and recorded this. So again, so, and and they were right because the Americans aren't going to give this up for decades to come. If I can just go back to something you were saying about sending American troops into these two cities, if I can be Machiavellian for a second, okay, you've got this horrible bomb that does horrible things. Of course you're going to lie and say there's no after effects. That's what you do. But then, I guess to keep that lie from being exposed, you send your own people into these areas to occupy these cities. Now, there's obviously not a lot to occupy. I, I would think that they would lie and say, no, the bombs are fine now. Every, you know, There's no radiation. And yet, come up or make excuses not to send your own people in there. I wonder if they truly were still trying to figure this out or only a few people knew about the radiation and said, fuck it, we're going to send our men anyway because we have to occupy these two major cities. It just astounds me they're willing to sacrifice their own people for the illusion that there's no after effects. Really? You're surprised that the U.S. government's willing to sacrifice its own people? I'm saddened that they're willing to kill or risk exposing their own people. But, yeah, I'm saddened by that. Well, listen, Truman didn't go there himself, man, so it's all okay. (laughs) It's all good. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. Um. Now, getting back to this New York Times article from 1967, it said the U.S. had put a hold on the Japanese using the film. Now, 
when did uh, the official American occupation of Japan conclude, Ray? Um, April 28, 
And uh, what else was going on in the United States in 1968? What else was going on? Was that Nixon? No, I don't know. Well, there was there was a lot of protests about Vietnam and America's involvement Vietnam. in Vietnam. Um, so I think the, the the last thing the media ah right run by the moneyed white elite uh, wanted to do was to sh- talk about footage showing the effects of American bombings when they're bombing the fuck out of Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia with white phosphorus. The last thing we want to do is show people the effects on women and children and men, civilians, uh, by American bombs from a war from a previous time, 20 years ago. Speaking of bombing the fuck out of, basically bombing your way out of any kind of situation, did you do any digging into General Orville Anderson? Uh, not digging, but I read about him. No, but if you want to talk about him, go right ahead. Just, just real quick. Th- this is what um, some of the military who have uh, say so over this all, all this films, all this footage. Th- these are kind of some of the people that they're dealing with. So, in June of nineteen forty-six, the ninety thousand feet of color footage it goes back to the uh, Pentagon, and it's under the command or turned over to General Orville Anderson. It's locked up and it's made top secret. It's not going to be seen for thirty years now. General Anderson, he was involved in World War II. He was involved in the Air War Plans Division. He was involved in the Combined Bomber Offensive against Germany. And um, in the 1950s, he becomes the commanding officer of the U.S. Air War College. And he was one of the most vocal advocates for, for the United States launching a preemptive war against the Soviet Union. Now, this guy has no problem showing the film to, to other people like himself, other people in the in the military. He thinks it's great. He thinks that, you know, it, hey, look what we did. You know, we showed those bastards, whatever. But he's given an interview. I think it was in an Alabama magazine. And he says, and he's talking about the Soviets. He says, give me the orders to do it. And I can break up Russia's five A-bomb nests in a week. And when I went up to Christ, I think I could explain to him why I wanted to do it now before it's too late. I think I could explain to him that I had saved civilization. So this guy is like Churchill on steroids with nuclear missiles, and he wants to bomb the fuck out of Russia in the 50s. And so and he, this is the, one of the guys that gets to say what happens to the film. So with this kind of madman running around the Pentagon, even though he likes to show it to everybody at the Pentagon who will sit down and eat some popcorn with him and watch it, it's not being shown to the outside because even in his adult mind, he knows the effect it will have on the American public. Mm. Bonkers. Erections. That's what they're all going to get. Erections. <laughs> My erection is nuclear. Now, this footage that was shot in 46 um, by the Americans when it was finally released in the 80s, Mm-hmm. journalist called Greg Mitchell um, who's written a couple of books on this that I've read over the years he went and interviewed the guy at the centre of the whole thing, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel A. McGovern now he was the guy that was in Japan in 45-46 he was sort of running the uh, filmmaker unit, filmmaking unit that Herbert mm-hmm. Suzanne uh, was with 
Uh, he also managed right. the uh, collection of the Japanese footage and then had kept watch on all of it for decades when oh. it was classified as top secret. Now, why did he make that? I mean, obviously it was a job, but it also seemed to be a personal mission for him. Did you get a sense about why he felt he needed to keep an eye on it? No. It was, he was ordered to. What else? Well, that... Well, that at the beginning, but as it, as it goes around, and I think it was General Anderson who told him to make sure this never gets out. This this film is going to get moved around to several locations over the decades, and he one one besides it was his job. He felt passionate about it because he was there in nineteen forty five and forty six. He wanted to make sure that it didn't disappear, that it didn't get lost, that it didn't somehow just, and so because he wants it to be seen. Yeah. by the American people. But at the same time, he wants to make sure that, you know, someone doesn't get in there and just make it all disappear. Yeah, you'd think if, I mean, if you if you knew that it was there and you knew what it contained, you would have found a way of, like, WikiLeaksing it out of that joint, right? And letting people right. see it. But <laughs> Something, um, hmm. yeah. So when Mitchell went to interview McGovern, McGovern told him, I always had the sense that people in the Atomic Energy Commission were sorry we had dropped the bomb. The Air Force, it was also sorry. I was told by people in the Pentagon that they didn't want those images out because they showed effects on man, woman and child. They didn't want the general public to know what their weapons had done at a time when they were planning on more bomb tests. We didn't want the material out because we were sorry for our sins. But the AEC, they were the ones that stopped it from coming out. They had the power of God over everybody. If it had anything to do with nukes, they had to see it. They were the ones who destroyed a lot of film and pictures of the first US nuclear tests after the war. After the war, sorry. The main reason it was classified was because of the horror, the devastation. So... Here we have a guy, military guy, who was given the job of watching over this footage for decades, and his take on it was they didn't want the American public to see it because they regretted dropping the bomb. The Air Force and the Atomic Energy Commission regretted that they'd done it, and they didn't want the general public to know what it had actually done to the men, women, and children civilians. Right. Now, the fact that they didn't make the decision doesn't really change anything. I think they truly were horrified and embarrassed that they and the entity they're part of, the military, did this. It was obviously Truman's and Burns' decision, but that's not the point. The point is, just because they're attached to it, that's that's enough for them to be horrified and humiliated by this. And yeah, I guess keep it in secret um, for your own reasons as far as the guilt of the country. But I found that, uh, where did it go? Um well, hold on, uh, General Andrew. Wait, yeah. before you move on, the the, the point I yeah. think is important here is that you know when I even like in the last few days, getting in discussions with um, not just Americans but people all over the place, including Australians and Brits, on Facebook about the bomb, everyone jumps to defend it and justify it. Everybody. Mm. Um, you know, uh, 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 not everybody, but tons of people will always jump into these conversations. And again, not just Americans. 
they'll jump in and they'll defend it. They'll say, yes, well, had to do it because we had to stop the Japanese or because the Japanese were brutal or the Japanese started it. And I've been going through, in the last weeks in particular, Reddit and forums and military forums and reading people's right. views on this. And it's like the amount of um, justification that goes on is astonishing. Um particularly considering that we know that the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey in 1946 said, yeah, the bomb didn't really end the war. And here we have McGovern saying that the Air Force and the Atomic Energy Commission were sorry they dropped the bomb. But generally speaking, a lot of people in the West don't seem to have that perspective. They're not sorry. They're like, fuck it, yeah, we it, it was the... It was, the right thing to do, not shit. That was a huge fuck up. Let's uh, yeah, <laughs> let's let's hide but, it but, from everybody, like the air force right. did. Right, but but what is that? Is that nationalistic pride? Is no, it it's not just Americans. Facts. Is it's it a, yes, right, right, right. It's it's Australians and British as well that are in these conversations. Not just Americans. So no, it's not n- nationalistic hubris. Um, although I'm sure there's some of that when you get into the Americans in the forums and that kind of stuff. But this, I guess my point is that they did such a good job in the propaganda uh, wars of this and hiding right. the truth from people and spinning it for 70 years that a significant number of the population, you know, I think we talked about these stats in an earlier episode uh, in the US, still something like 60% of the population believe the bombs were justified it's down from like 85 percent in 1945 46 Mm -hmm. but i remember that still two-thirds of the population think it was justified despite all of the evidence that we have available to us and it's been around for decades that it wasn't necessary and probably not justified either and you know i get into these conversations with people they go well yeah the fucking the japanese started and they were brutal they go wait 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 Japanese civilians didn't start shit. Japanese civilians were at home raising their children and going to work. You can say that the Japanese military started it, which we know they didn't because they, right. they, they may have made the first military attack on the Americans, but the Americans were engaged in economic warfare with them already. So we've already dismantled that argument previously. But, you know, that's people use that still. Secondly... Were the Japanese military brutal? Yeah, absolutely brutal and horrific. But that was the Japanese military. The combatants, again, the men, women and children back home weren't the ones doing that. They were raising their kids, going to work, just living their lives. You you can't blame the civilians back home for what the military are doing. I don't think you can anyway. Um, but that, that kind of gets brushed over and these go, you know, fuck the Japanese. They deserved it kind of thing. Anyway, I, I never, I never thought about that before that the, the propaganda was so successful in that 
this was a, because we haven't used the bomb since this was such a unique set of circumstances. We wanted to end the war. We wanted to save live American lives. Uh, they started the war they kind of deserve whatever they get that that story has been so well crafted and maintained for so many de- um, decades that that's in some way, in some form or another, the first response out of a lot of people or the first response in their mind when someone like you gets on Facebook and poses a question, that's the first thing that comes out because they know it to be true. And they're, and they're about to correct you. And we'll get into that a little impressive. bit later, Ron. I've got some other stuff yeah. I want to say about that. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing job that all these years later, people still um, have these ideas firmly in their mind. I, I found that quote from General Anderson. I just want to mention mm. this. So in 1947, the footage was classified as secret. And as we all know, there's different levels of secrecy in, in, the, in the American government. So it's classified as secret. And the footage um, was going to be raised to top secret pending uh, the American, uh, the Atomic Energy uh, Commission review. So the, the color footage, and like I said earlier, it was moved around several times over the decades. The color footage was shipped to Wright-Patterson Base in Ohio. And McGovern, who was still following this this footage around, he is told by Anderson, put an ID number on it and do not let anyone touch it. And that's where it was going to stay. And so they put it in a vault. It's now from secret to top secret. So even fewer people within the government and military have access to it or even know that it's there. Because they kept shipping it around. And it's not like they told anybody. Just like when they declassify it, they're not going to tell anybody it's been declassified. Yeah, well, it's the best kind of secret is the secret that people don't know is a secret. <laughs> right. So... All your nearly, work is done for you. Nearly nobody knew this film even existed, so they weren't going and looking for it. Right. Um, mm. Now, because it was all hidden, all of this footage in the photographs for so long, the whole question about the bombings pretty much sank into the deeper recesses of American awareness. Um, uh, didn't really they don't get, know. They don't know. Uh, there's a costly nuclear arms race going on, nuclear proliferation, and the you know everyone's focused on that. No one's really thinking about what happened uh, to the, the civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But um, remember Wilfred Burchett from the last episode, the Aussie journalist, first mm-hmm. in Hiroshima. Four days after his story splashed on the front pages around the world, Major General Leslie Groves, our old friend, the director of the uh, Manhattan Project, invited... How did he say his first name? Hi, I'm Leslie. I mean, what do you do with that? (laughs) Yeah, I think he just didn't bring that up. Groves, just call me Groves. (laughs) General. Um, All right, go ahead. He invited a select group of journalists, 30 journalists, to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. He was going to give them the truth, the facts, just the facts about the Manhattan Project. Now, uh, the, most, the, the, the most uh, uh, notable of these reporters was a guy called William L. Lawrence, science reporter for the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Wow. 
Not not many science reporters have won Pulitzer Prizes, <laughs> but he was one for of them. reason. Right now, Groves took this group of thirty reporters to the Trinity site, um, showed them around, said, "Look, no radiation." They all died a week later, but at the time, no. But he walked them around. He's saying, "Look, there's no radiation. Look, you feel okay? I feel okay. Look." We're all good. Yeah. Hundred white blood cells. Yeah. And uh, William L. Lawrence ran a front page story as a result of that uh, in the New York Times, oh. September 12th, 1945. U.S. atom bomb site belies Tokyo tales. Tests on New Mexico range confirmed that blast and not radiation took toll. The historic oh ground God. in New Mexico, scene of the first atomic explosion on Earth and cradle of a new era in civilization, gave the most effective answer today to Japanese propaganda that radiations were responsible for deaths even after the day of the explosion, August 6th, and that persons entering Hiroshima had contracted mysterious maladies due to persistent radioactivity. Um, he said that the army had invited him and the other journalists out to the Trinity site to give the lie to these claims. He quoted General Groves, The Japanese claimed that people died from radiation. If this is true, the number was very small. Then Lawrence wrote, The Japanese are still continuing their propaganda aimed at creating the impression that we won the war unfairly and thus attempting to create sympathy for themselves and milder terms. Thus, at the beginning, the Japanese described symptoms that did not, tre- did not ring true. Groves was a cunt, but he's good at his job. Lawrence went on to write 10 articles for the New York Times that basically served as a glowing tribute to the ingenuity and technical achievements of the American nuclear program and wrote nothing or in fact downplayed and denied the human impact of the bombing on the civilians and uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. I'm sure if that was his second, scratch, I think it might have been his second Pulitzer Prize. Right. In other words, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Yes. Now, um, I don't know about the Trinity site in 1945, but today mm-hmm. the radiation levels at the Trinity site are 10 times greater than the region's natural background radiation. Fuck. Now. Lingering. Lingering, yeah. yes. He said there was no radiation in 1945. Even today, it's 10 times higher than everywhere else. Now, that's not enough to cause you any damage 10 times higher. What it was in 1945, God only right. knows. Um, well, since it was fake news and the pro- reporters are the enemy of the people, according to Trump, I think it's justifiable uh, to expose them to any kind of lingering radiation. I, I think that would get the uh, White House's approval. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Oh, speaking of which, on a serious note, did you see? I, I don't. You just got up. Did you read about the shootings in Annapolis, Maryland? Yeah, I. Well, my mother read them out to me this morning. Yeah. J- just that three days ago, Trump is in a rally in Somerville, South Carolina, where I used to live, and he points at the the reporters in the back and he says they're the enemy of the American people. Three days later, someone goes into a newspaper. I don't know any of the details. I could be way off, and I'm not saying directly that Trump did this, but you just can't, you have to watch what you say when you're the president because people listen to you and believe you. So, and, and now we have at least, I think at least five people are dead. Mm. Another mass shooting. Mm. I'll get off my soapbox now. Mm. Can we talk about, um, the just real quick, the uh, Americans may be using nuclear weapons after World War II. I found this little bit interesting. Um, so during the heightened tension um, in the 1960s, before and after the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, there were few people in the United States who would argue against the idea of using uh, nuclear weapons. In fact, would argue against um, they, they wouldn't argue against the two bombs that we dropped on Japan, saying that they were necessary. That the United States maintained its first use nuclear policy under certain circumstances, it would be okay to strike first with a bomb and try to figure out the details later. So basically what it, what the American government uh, in, in its different forms is saying is that there's no taboo when it comes to using nuclear weapons. And of course, this all started with Hiroshima. So I thought this was interesting. So the first time when we're fighting with um, against North Korea, President Truman sends nuclear-capable B-29s with four Mark bombs to Guam. However and this is the important part, they didn't have their fissile cores. And, of course, then the, the United States leads the UN forces and we reestablish uh, the boundary uh, with MacArthur's invasion of Incheon. And then after J- China intervened in November of 1950 and begins to push back the UN forces, <clears throat> Truman publicly states that he would not rule out the use of nuclear weapons and this time sends nine fissile cores in April of 1951. So, but again, you know, we're able to push them back uh, and have the eventual armistice. Um, but so again, I wonder, and we'll probably never know the answer to this, how many times during the 60s uh, we came close to using nuclear weapons again. I, I just I just find it hard to believe that for the people who have seen these films, and you've, you've got to think reports got back to Truman about the devastation, that there's actually... They're actually considering using this. Now, what makes it even more complicated is at the time during the 60s, and I think during the 70s, the United States did not have a, a clear-cut policy for using nuclear uh, weapons in, in local conflicts. The only real nuclear policy we had at the time was the massive retaliation against Soviet, uh, Soviet you know, Russia. So he can talk all he wants about using them in local in local theaters of war but there really was no clear cut policy does that mean the president's hand are, are is tied or he can do whatever he wants as long as he gets congress to go with him about using nuclear weapons so again i just would i wish we could really know how many times america if we did at all actually almost came close to using nuclear weapons another time well, I guess we're going to get into that um, over the course With of the, the series. Yeah, <laughs> right. that's kind of the point of this we're fucking show, it. Ray, is to talk about that. <laughs> it's going to freak me out. Okay.
despite the fact that we're on hour 87 and we haven't got to the Cold War yet, uh, we will at some point. We're we're warming up. We're warming up. No. Chucka, chucka, chucka. So, getting back to the denial um, by the American military and then, which was then faithfully propagated by the American media about the dangers of radiation from nuclear tests and the use of nuclear bombs. Um, I think one of the main reasons the US wanted to discredit the connections between blowing up an atomic bomb and dangerous radiation is they are blowing them up in America. They had blown one up in New Mexico. Imagine what the locals would do if they thought they were eating irradiated food and breathing in irradiated air and that it was going to give right. them cancer and they might die. Which, of course, they were. Oh, my God. The fuck? So for years, many of the residents of the town of Tularosa, which sounds like straight out of a fucking David Lynch film to me, but... <laughs> It's a small town about 35 miles from the Trinity site. They got smaller. Uh (laughs) For many years, they've had unusually high rates of cancer. They are part of a group of Americans that call themselves the Downwinders. Oh, fuck. Um, For the past several years, uh, a bill to list the residents of Tularosa under the 1990 Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, has been repeatedly Mm -hmm. rejected by U.S. Congress. Cunts, every single one of them. And, of course, the U.S. didn't stop testing nuclear weapons after Trinity. United States has conducted 1,054 nuclear weapons tests to date involving at least 1,151 nuclear devices, which I find interesting. How do you only have 1,054 weapons tests involving 1,151 mm-hmm. devices? Does that mean 100 of them didn't go off? Or they? That's still a test, have... though. If a test doesn't go yeah. off, it's still a test. I don't know how you, there's a, why there's 100 gap there. I don't think they need to split hairs on that. And two, here we are giving North Korea shit about their testing. Yeah. Now, most of these tests occurred at the Nevada test site and the Pacific Proving Grounds in the Marshall Islands. And I think there were 10 other tests in Alaska, Colorado, Mississippi, and New Mexico. Now, lots of the people in Arizona, Nevada, and Utah, but also Oregon, Washington, and Idaho are classified as downwinders. Um, and people in Chrissy's hometown of Cedar City in Utah are downwinders. Chrissy's known a ton of people there who have died of cancer at quite young ages um, and been paid out in some cases, compensation from that uh, Radiation Exposure Compensation Act for dying. Yeah. Do right. you know how much you get if, you're, uh, if you make a claim God. against the... Radiation Exposure Compensation Act? What is an American uh, life least, worth, Ray? It better be $72. No, it better be at least a million dollars. Close. Uh, take um, a bunch of zeros off. Um, 
fifty thousand dollars is what you get if the your government kills you from uh, nuclear radiation. Well, we both know that fifty thousand dollars in the United States won't even begin to cover hospital bills up until the point that you die. That's bullshit. Mm. Now, uh, you know, there are several recognized health effects from radiation, increased cancer, thyroid diseases, female reproductive cancers that can lead to congenital Mm -hmm. malformations in babies, all observed in these downwind communities that were exposed to nuclear fallout and radioactive contamination. From 1951 to 1962, the uh, Atomic Energy Commission in the United States detonated more than 100 bombs, which sent huge pinkish plumes of radioactive dust sweeping down the stony valleys and canyons of southern Utah and northern Arizona. But it's okay, Ray, because they gave all of these tests cute names. Uh, They were like Annie, Eddie, Humboldt, and Badger. Uh, And the official advice when they were doing this in the 50s and the early 60s was enjoy the show. The AEC booklets that were put out said, your best action is not to be worried about fallout. So families and, and lovers... Would, would would it was a cheap date. You would drive up to right. a vantage point close to the explosion and then watch as the nuclear dust rose up into the air and then wafted down across your convertible and into your hometown and cheered and clapped and said, Hey ho, America, you're the greatest. It's like rainbow snow. Oh, look, it's finally down around. Can I ask a... But it, okay. but but fuck that yeah, Stalin guy for killing his because... own people. Now breathe in the nuclear fallout and thank you, think yourself lucky that you're an American. God. So, and I'm going to be very vague. If I have a nuclear weapon, and let's say on a scale from one to ten, it's about a five, and you're another country and you've got nuclear weapons and you've got a nuclear weapon that's the strength of eight. So yours is bigger and better than mine. Don't you dare say anything. If I can make a whole bunch of fives, do I really need to keep testing so I can make a nine bomb or a 10 bomb that's more powerful than yours? I mean, it's a fucking nuclear bomb that I probably can mass produce to some degree. Why do they have to keep testing to make it bigger and more and deadlier? I'm just trying to understand why do you keep testing? Yeah, it's like when when the a single bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed 130,000 people apiece. And somebody looked at that and went, "Well, that's good. We better. That's a good start, <laughs> but uh quite honestly, hold my beer. Hold my beer. You know, maybe if we keep working at this, we could kill we could have killed all 310,000 men, women, and children in Hiroshima in one go. Um, I'm not satisfied. I have to tell you, uh, I, I, I lie awake at night thinking if only we'd killed another 100,000 people with that bomb. Um, the then, war would have been over even sooner. Yeah, yeah, that's really now, what we want to do. 
Now, going back to something you said earlier about killing civilians along with the military, if they can make a smart nuclear bomb that they drop and it kills everybody who's currently holding a gun, okay, I can I can semi-see that, but these are just bombs. That's just the way bombs work. It just wipes out everything in the area. And like you said, most of the victims, the vast majority of victims, were civilians who, and kids, who had nothing to do with the decision to go to war. Mm. Like, I mean, I've I've used this example many times over the years, but uh, Americans will say, well, bombing Hiroshima was justified because we were at war with Japan. Um, yeah. And yet when Saudi hijackers uh, flew planes into 9-11, killed 3,000 Americans, they said that's an act of hor- horrifying terrorism. Well, eh, eh, pretty much the same thing, I think. Really, uh, the 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 guys in the Middle East were at war with America. Um, Al Qaeda was at war with America. May not be a classic traditional official uh, war, uh, right. but the it's a war. It's a war. Right. They're at war, and if killing if if you. you how do you say killing civilians is okay in Hiroshima, but killing civilians in New York City is not okay? I'm sure if you ask somebody with a magma hat on, they could spend three hours answering that question, and none of it would make sense. Call it a magma hat? Yeah, M-A-G-A. It's maga, not magma. Magma, magma. is what comes out oh, of a volcano. I, I got- <laughs> I see you sneak another M in there. Make America great more again. Actually, that's probably something that a Trump supporter. Look, I don't know all my letters so good. MAGA. MAGA? MAGA. MAGA. Yeah, Yeah. maggot. Yeah. And I just want to, I know you're going to keep on going with the story, but just to loop around to the footage again, just so that doesn't get lost anywhere. So in September 1967, the Air Force transfers the Japanese footage to the National Archives audiovisual branch in Washington with the um, title not to be released without the approval of the Department of Defense. Obviously, they're not going to do that. And I think you might have touched on this. I can't remember. During all of this time in the 50s and the 60s, the Japanese government has been negotiating with the United States government to get back the film. And in the summer of 1968, the United States sends Japan a copy of the black and white newsreel footage that was shot by the Japanese uh, soon after the the two bombings, so it took a, it took us until 1968 to send them a copy of what they had originally um, recorded themselves. Yeah, I already told that story, man. Where have you been? Did you? I I must have blanked out. I apologize. I like the way I told it, but that's fine. So, getting back to the tests uh, in on the mainland U.S. Um, the Deseret News, one of my favorite newspapers, Salt Lake City, <laughs> uh, wrote, uh, Spectacular atomic explosions mean progress in defense. No cause for panic. Um, yeah, Mormons, man. Uh, no, no cause for panic. Mormons disproportionately uh, affected uh, by the downwinder syndrome. 
Because Jesus loves them. Uh, extra, extra good. The Mormons, that's why he gave them, all down nu- on them. nuclear yeah. fallout cancer. 11 bombs were detonated in 1953 alone between March and June mm. that coated St. George, Utah, which is about <sighs> 45 minutes away from Chrissy's hometown. Coated it with grey nuclear dust. Um, now, a year later, a movie was made in St. George. Mm-hmm. Not a good movie, but it was a movie nonetheless. It was a movie called The Conqueror, big budget Hollywood blockbuster about Genghis Khan. Oh. Uh, do you know who they cast as Genghis Khan, Ray? No, please tell me. If you had to pick... Tom- Tom Cruise. No, I'm just. No, I don't know. It's 1954, Ray. Um, oh, so I know. I know. Time isn't one of your specialties, but uh, and I know Tom Cruise <laughs> well, is I am a deceptively old. Yeah, yeah, I know you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, look. If you had, if you had to pick 54. an actor to portray Genghis Khan in 1954, who would you pick? Are we Are we doing the racial thing? Are we just going for a big guy? Whatever you Give want. Give me a clue. <laughs> Who can I call? Okay, well, <laughs> i give you a hint. Genghis Khan in the movie told like this. Well, if you're gonna stand there on your horse, I'm gonna... <laughs> I'm not gonna punch you like hell I won't. <laughs> Did they dye his skin and grow a little mustache and... Yeah. Whatever the fuck else yeah. you have to do. Oh, my yeah. God. John yeah. the motherfucking Wayne. John the motherfucking Wayne. That's on American. Yeah. So they shot this in St. George, in and around St. George, Utah, a year after they detonated 11 nuclear bombs and coated the city in nuclear dust. Oh, my God. In did John uh, Wayne die of? In 1980, it was reported that of the 220 cast and crew of that film... 91 mm-hmm. had contracted cancer and 46 of them were dead. <sighs> including John Wayne, leading lady Susan Hayward, director Dick Powell, and other members of the cast and crew. John Wayne's two teenage sons at the time who were there on location mm-hmm. also had cancer but they managed to survive it um there's a there's a great photo (laughs) great photo that i found in a story of john wayne on location filming this with his two sons and he's holding a little black box looking at it quizzically um the little black box was a geiger counter and apparently uh it was clicking its fucking ass off and he was like He kept moving it around and it kept going. (laughs) And he was like. And he's like hamming it up. He's like, this thing must be broken. (laughs) They told me there's no radiation here. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. All right. So the government sending U.S. troops to Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the bombing. Okay, fine. But you don't risk the life of the Duke, a man who made a career out of playing soldiers in Hollywood. You, you, you get the director, you get the producer and go, uh, <clears throat> you might want to, 
you might want to film this somewhere else. I can't talk about it. You don't sacrifice the Duke, is my point. Mm. Well... I did write that uh, the Duke was also a, cha- a lifelong chain smoker, so maybe that killed him. Uh, Along and, with and, all the other people, yeah. As everyone was back then, though. They're all chain smokers, but uh, yeah. yeah. Coincidence. Yeah, I don't think so. Also, another cast member who uh, got cancer and died, uh, who was on location, was Agnes Moorhead. I've heard that name. Oh, man. Agnes Moorhead was in a little movie called Citizen Kane. Ah. I think she played uh, his mother when he's a child. She was in Orson's other great film uh, after that, The Magnificent Ambersons. But you probably know her best as uh, Samantha's mother on Bewitched. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) (laughs) She also died... She died in 1974 from cancer, um, which some people suspect she got when she was on location at that film. I thought I'd read many, many, many decades ago, because yes, I'm that old, that they could use, um, whenever they came about, I can't remember, supercomputers to mimic many things, including an atomic explosion. Do you think they've decreased testing these things if they can simulate them? Or am I way off base here? Uh, I mean, I don't even know why they'd still be testing them. Like, they fucking work! They've been working for 70 years. Stop testing already. Really good. Really, really really good. good. And you haven't used one for 70 years. So, like, cut it out. Really. Seriously. Cut it out. They work. It's fine. Test it in Canada. Don't fucking test it here. No, No, I'm just joking. I didn't. Don't don't tempt Trump, man. Piss off. He might do it. Oh, back to journalist William L. Lawrence, the guy who wrote that there was no radiation at the Trinity site. Oh, yeah. Who won a ward. Yeah. Yeah. Won a Pulitzer. Great, great, great reporting. Apparently, wasn't only getting a salary from the New York Times, was also on the payroll of the War Department. Uh, Oh, because that's what you want with your uh, independent journalists. Uh, <laughs> that's what you want with your check. journalism is when they're on the government payroll. Uh, in March of 1945, so even be- before they'd done the Trinity test, General Groves had a secret meeting with the New York Times with Lawrence and offered him a job of writing press releases for the Manhattan Project. Wow. Now, you know, as a, as a reporter, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so you can't say no. But having said that, Groves can tell you whatever he wants to tell you, and you're not going to question it because it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And because you're getting paid by him to write what he fucking and says and put it in the New York Times. <laughs> There's that, too. Mm. Yeah. Um, he also, Lawrence, that is, uh, helped write statements about the bomb for President Truman and the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. Damn. Now, here's Can't a strange, strange, strange twist to this story. There was another New York Times journalist who reported on Hiroshima. His name was also, believe it or not, William Lawrence. Uh, mm-hmm. but it was L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, and the other guy was L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E. So uh, two William Lawrence's right. writing about Hiroshima 
for the New York Times at the same time. Uh, he, his byline was W.H. Lawrence. The other guy was William L. Lawrence. Now, unlike the Pulitzer Prize winner, William Lawrence, this other W.H. Lawrence visited and reported on Hiroshima. Um, he was there on the same day as Wilfred Burchett. His original dispatch from Hiroshima was published September 5th, 1945. And in that, he reported also about the atomic plague, the effects of radiation. He wrote, The Japanese doctors worried that all who had been in Hiroshima that day would die as a result of the bomb's lingering effects. Persons who had been only slightly injured on the day of the blast lost 86% of their white blood corpuscles, developed temperatures of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, their hair began to drop out, they lost their appetites, vomited blood, and finally died. One week later, he wrote another article for the New York Times headlined, No Radioactivity in Hiroshima Ruin. Somebody got to him. You think? (laughs) Well, let let me just... I'm going to ask a really naive question here. As we stressed when we were covering the Manhattan Project, these guys are, are, are inventing brand new things as they're going along. Yes, you've got the laws of physics and all that stuff and the chemistry. I get all that. And they, but a lot of that they were figuring out and a lot of it they could predict what would happen. Did they really believe that they could make this bomb and that either the heat would burn up the radiation or cause the radiation to to go up into the atmosphere, which is one of the reasons they blew it up while it was pretty high in the sky, not closer to the ground. I mean, did they did they know? Did they care? Did they find out later and then sweep it all under the rug? I mean, I, mean, I, want, I would really love to know deep in their hearts how much they actually knew about the radiation, you know, an hour after the bombing versus just worrying about how much how powerful the explosion was going to be. I don't think they knew uh, entirely. Like, they didn't even know that the Trinity bomb was going to work. They knew a little boy was going to work. We, as we've discussed, they didn't even test the little boy design. Right. The they, they were very, very confident that that would work. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, in, in terms of the radiation, they, they knew that this would create radiation, there was debate about what would happen to it, and and we'll see. A lot of it depends on how you blow it up, where and when you you detonate. I'll get to uh, that in a second. Um, mm-hmm. Back to W. H. Lawrence, uh, the the second Lawrence writing for the New York Times mm-hmm. when he changed his story. He reported that Brigadier General T. F. Farrell, chief of the War Department's atomic bomb mission to Hiroshima, denied categorically that the bomb produced a dangerous, lingering radioactivity. So this is what the War Department is spreading at the time about it. Not even saying we're not sure, we don't know, maybe, could be. Some (laughs) people think... Yeah, no, denied categorically. Talking nonsense. Lawrence's dispatch from Hiroshima, his second one, only quotes Farrell. Never mentions any eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of people dying from radiation sickness like he had in his first article. Doesn't talk about the Japanese scientists or the Japanese doctors. None of that. Just what the uh, Brigadier General had to say. That's all that mattered in his mm. second report. 
Now, in case you're thinking, well, maybe they didn't know any better. Uh, in that mm-hmm. same article, Dr. Harold Jacobson from Columbia University, who specialized in atomic research, said he thought that radiation could linger for 70 years. Oh, God. So it's not like there was nobody thinking about this shit uh, back then. Um, They may not have known exactly what would happen, but there were people like Jacobson going, yeah, this this is going to be really fucking bad. Now, as it turns out, the radiation levels at both Hiroshima and Nagasaki today are negligible. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, a bomb that detonates near or on the ground has a greater chance of producing radioactive fallout than one that's detonated high in the air. If the bomb is detonated in the air, the ball of fire that it produces, which is radioactive, will travel up into the stratosphere mm-hmm. and do that usually within minutes. Then the cloud cools down and begins to look like a regular cloud, but it's still hot and radioactive. Mm-hmm. And the prevailing winds in the stratosphere will then blow this cloud over a huge area. It'll stay in the atmosphere for a few weeks because of the heat hot rises, obviously, and the lightness of the particles, after which the, the particles begin to fall out of the cloud, that's why we call it radioactive fallout, and come back down to Earth. But by this time, the radioactive particles have been dispersed over a really wide area, thousands of square miles. The most dangerous of the radioactive elements will have been rendered inert by decay, but if they dropped closer to the ground, something, if they, sorry, exploded closer to the ground, something different happens. But the bombs that were dropped on Japan were detonated high up in the air. So the radioactive fireball didn't touch the ground. Ah. And that dramatically reduced the long term radioactive fallout. Now, the US did this not out of consideration for the people on the ground, obviously, but because it was the ideal height to maximize the destruction of the structures of the city. Right. You had a much bigger impact zone if you exploded it up in the air than if you hit the ground, where a lot of the structures and things would absorb the heat and the impact. You, You can't see it, but my hand's up. What about the Trinity test that was, was that like 60 feet? How, how tall is that tower? Mm, about that, yeah. Yeah, no, and that was much closer to the ground. Yeah, yeah, not good. And then they went and then they went and looked at the what was left of the tower, that, that photo of Oppie and all the other ones. So, mm. damn. See, what happens is when you explode it closer to the ground, you, you, you blow up dust and dirt into the atmosphere, mm-hmm. which are irradiated... They fall back down to the ground and they're still irradiated. They don't get dispersed as much as just uh, air, you know, lighter particles in the air will, because you know your gas particles will get blown up more by the wind. Dust and dirt, not as far. They tend to fall down in the one zone. Yeah. 
Um, and and that's the way they did all the good old home detonations in the US and Nevada, which is why everyone's got cancer in America. All those people that in that, the question. downwinders, right? right? Jesus. Uh, yeah. So now one of the other things they think probably happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is during the rebuilding of the cities, r- rubble would have been cleared away. And a lot of that would have been radioactive and it would have been taken away, dumped somewhere else. Right. Now, the people taking it away probably all died of cancer, but uh, yeah. at least they got it out of the city. Right. Thank and you. Th- then rain and snow would have washed radioactive particles that were on the ground down below the ground and into subterranean waterways where they would have ended up in rivers and oceans and it would have been dispersed. Right. Now, take a guess. Since um, the the bomb was dropped in Hiroshima, how many people do you think have died as a result of cancers attributable to little boys' radiation release? That weren't... That right. didn't get hit with it on the day. Yeah. For how many years after? Decades? Since then. Yeah, 70 years. Oh, um, uh, 50,000 people. About 1,900 people is the estimate that wow. I read. About 0.5% of the post-bombing population. Mm-hmm. But still... Yeah, not as high as you would expect. Of course, tens of thousands got hit with radiation on the day of the bombing and have died, but uh, only a relatively small amount of contracted cancer, they think, as a result of the radiation that was in the environment afterwards. A lot of those probably American soldiers and uh, (laughs) scientists Uh, who came to check it out. Um, We don't have any... Uh, subsequent uh, cancer death data um, from radiation exposure from Fat Man, the Nagasaki bomb that I've been able to get my hands on. Mm. Still just um, a fucking nightmare. I'm about to go into wrap-up mode, but uh, have you got anything else you want to throw in before I do that? Just, um, and I think we kind of answered this, that why it was kept secret for so long and you've already answered my second question that I had written down. Who made the decision? It seems like it was the um, the Atomic Energy Commission or Department of Defense. I think you said something like if it had anything to do with nuclear weapons, they're the ones who made the decision and they kept it shut down for decades. And we've already answered the first question. So just uh, just a massive conspiracy theory for so many different self-serving reasons, uh, the Cold War wanting to test other bombs, you you don't want the people to be against uh, nuclear bombs if you feel like you need them to, to challenge Russia. It was just the government lying to its people and killing some of its own people for decades. Mm. Um. I like to end on a high note. Well, we're not because, uh, yeah, I got I got even more uh, more no. things to go there. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Hold on, I'm just looking up data on how many people Americans have died from nuclear radiation. Um, 
Drawing upon millions of government records and new, large numbers of interviews, a uh, team of investigative, investigative... Fuck, that's hard to say at this time of day. <laughs> Plenty of this 2016 report. Investigative journalists have concluded that employment in the nation's nuclear weapons plant since 1945 led to 107,394 American workers contracting cancer or other serious diseases. Fuck. Of these people, some 53,000 judged by government officials to have experienced excessive radiation on the job. They've received $12 billion in compensation under the federal government's Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Program, and 33,480 of these workers have died. Jeez. Doesn't say about the downwinders. Um... Uh, 80,000 people have contracted cancer uh, downwinders, according to this study. Um, there you go. That's insane. Mm. 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 Couldn't they drop the bombs like they did for the Japanese? They, they have to fucking test it on the ground in the United States. I mean, how stupid is that? But I think we've already covered that. All right. In 2016, uh, Barack Obama became the first sitting U.S. president to visit Hiroshima, 71 years after the bomb was dropped. He said, we came to mourn... He was waiting for the radiation to go away. He said, we come to mourn the dead, including over 100,000 Japanese men, women and children, thousands of Koreans, a dozen Americans held prisoner. Someday, the voices of the Hibakusha will no longer be with us to bear witness. Hibakusha is the Japanese word for survivors of the uh, bombs. But the memory of the morning of August 6, 1945 must never fade. Now, it was a good speech. Um, Got a lot of criticism back home uh, from the usual places you would expect, the GOP and Fox News. But he didn't apologise on behalf of his country. Should he have? He can't. He can't. I mean, it's Why? one. How many strikes does he have against him? One, he's black. Two, he's over there saying it's a horrible thing. He's and a, like three, you said, he he's a secret. Sh- he's a secret communist Muslim. <laughs> Muslim. Mm. Muslim. No, but he got enough shit as it was. I mean. If he was to apologize, I mean, it, that would be worse than wearing a tan suit. They would they would be ripping him for months. So um, that the fact that he went over there maybe is the first step in a 12-step process. Maybe one president in the future, not Trump, can apologize. But I think this was a, a first step. You're not going to have any more presidents after Trump, man. I've already called that. You're going to go, kings, uh, maybe kings. emperors. Yeah. Right. Um. So I want to explore this question about an apology. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I read oh, American... Did did the Japanese apologize for attacking Pearl Harbor? And I'm not being flippant. I'm legitimately... I, I've never... I don't remember. Not that it's the same thing, obviously. I'm just... That, that came to my mind when I thought about it. Anyway, please continue. Mm. I will get to that. Whenever I read okay. Americans discussing the question of an apology to Japan, I, there's normally a few common arguments I get. The first is they started it. 
Well, mm-hmm. no, they didn't. As as I pointed out before, America was already engaged in an economic war with Japan. They'd put economic sanctions on them before Pearl Harbor. The U.S. had moved their fleet to Hawaii, which was obviously signaling their intention to attack Japanese troops in China. And when you're when you're acting aggressive towards another country, and they decide to retaliate. Is that they started it? Is that striking first? I guess you can you can you can have different opinions on that. Um, mm-hmm. you, you might say yes, you might say no. Um, I'm open to that discussion, but I think it's very simplistic to say they started it. Um, by the way, and uh, with that, I want to point out when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, they attacked a military facility where there mm-hmm. were. It was a it was a naval base that they attacked. They didn't attack civilians. When when America bombed Tokyo, firebombing, and then nuclear attacks on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they were attacking civilians, not military targets. Uh, there may have been some industrial slash military targets scattered in there, but essentially they were civilian centers that they were they were attacking which we know. Um, so they're different things, as you said. The other argument I hear is, well, what about Dresden or Tokyo or, or, or London or whatever? People say more civilians died in Dresden than Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined and we didn't apologise to them. Both of which are true. Mm-hmm. But that's not a great argument. Um, I didn't apologise to that this guy... So why would I apologise to that guy? I mean, that's that's not really a coherent argument. Uh, as a, if you did that in your daily life, if your wife came up to you and said, right. "Look, I think you should apologise for what you said to me," you go, "Well, I didn't apologise to my last wife, so why the fuck am I going to so, apologise to you?" You start apologising, it starts starts yeah. a bad trend of yeah. apologising, right? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it's, that's a very weak argument. Yeah, doesn't doesn't work. Now, of course, there's another question here. Do the Japanese even want an apology? It seems that at least some don't. Um, There was a secret State Department cable from 2009 that was published by WikiLeaks that suggested that uh, some Japanese are pretty cool to the idea of an apology because it would serve to energize anti-nuclear activists in the country. Um. Mm. In 2007, Shinzo Abe's first term as prime minister uh, during that, his defense minister, Fumio Kiyuma, referred to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as something that couldn't be helped. Now, opposition leaders in Japan took issue with that position, but the government's official stance was that it would be more meaningful for the US and Japan to aim for a peaceful and safe world without nuclear weapons. Now, apparently, one of their concerns, the Japanese concerns, is that if the US apologizes to Japan, then Japan will face pressure to apologize to China and Australia and the uh. Philippines for their own war crimes during World War II and other conflicts. But is that a bad thing? Why is it such a bad thing to apologize for atrocities that our nations have done in the past? Well, some people say, well, it's in the past. Well, the doi 
Everything you ever apologize for is in the past, you fucking dumbasses. You don't apologize for things that you are going to do in the future. Well, maybe you do, but that's Actually, not generally. Yeah. Right. That's not how it works. <laughs> I'd like, to, apo- like to apologize. <laughs> I'd like to apologize to all the uh, people in uh, uh, Paris, Ajaxio, Florence, Rome, and Athens yeah, for the for fact the that I'm bringing Ray. Pull. Okay. <laughs> just because I'm bringing and, you there, yeah, and Fox and, and Cam and Cam's <laughs> going to be speaking. Uh, I think you said Japanese, so yeah, I like. To yeah. <laughs> no, but but you but you bring up a, a very good point because um, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen? Because what, I, what and I didn't say this in the previous episode was that Japan had the government and military had been striving mightily as much as the Americans had after World War II about making sure that all the crazy shit that they did in China, the decapitations, and we don't have to go into that, but the point is they were getting their frustrations out by cutting off, you know, thousands of heads. And a, and a good clean cut really helped them relieve pressure, they said. But the point is they were trying to hide a shit ton of stuff that they did in China. But what is the worst case scenario if the Japanese government today, or the military, whoever, someone who wasn't a part of it, says we want to apologize to all of the Chinese for the rape of Nanking, all the things that we do. And and then they apologize to the Americans for Pearl Harbor. And then we apologize for the for the dropping the bomb, the fire. What is the worst thing that could possibly happen for apologizing? Mm. And I can't, I can't think of anything. Well, do you reopen think, old wounds or, you know, I don't know. What does that fucking mean? Reopen? You, like you don't use those sorts of justifications in day to day life. Like mm. if your wife comes to you and say, look, you really uh, hurt my feelings with that thing that you did yesterday. You don't say, listen, right. um, I'm not going to apologize because it might reopen old wounds. <laughs> I'm gonna try that next time. No, but but you're right. I mean, I know I, I was just I was just taking a shot at trying to answer my own question. What's the worst thing that can happen for apologizing? Well, I I think one of the concerns quite often is that if you apologize, it's an admission of guilt, which could lead to lawsuits. But okay. that's a that's a legal matter, and if you are guilty, there should be lawsuits. So fucking, so what? Right. Admit it, deal with the lawsuits, move on. But, you know, we should apologize for things that we've done. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of maturity. It's a sign of sincerity. It's a sign that we care about others and we want to mend their hurt in order that we might have a healthy relationship with them moving forwards. And maybe we're I mean, trying it, to be better people. Yeah. Yeah. Better nations, better people. I mean, when, mm. when people say to me things like, well, I'm not apologizing for that. It happened in the past. I'm like, you're, you're a broken human being. That, that's a fucked up way to go through life. Now, there have been apologies before one nation apologizing to another for things that have uh, happened in the past. The British, in 2010, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, 
David Cameron apologised to the Irish for the bloody Sunday uh, killings. I th- or either that or he was mm-hmm. apologising for the U2 song. I'm not sure, but no, they were Irish, so yeah, they should be apologising. Um, uh, Willie Brandt, uh, the, the, the Chancellor of Germany, kind of apologised. He got down uh, on his knees when he went to the Warsaw, Warsaw Ghetto. Um, mm. I think East Germany eventually did apologise to Israel and all Jews for the Holocaust. Um, East Germany's yeah. first freely elected parliament admits joint responsibility on behalf of the people for the humiliation, expulsion and murder of Jewish women, men and children, they said in a statement back in uh, 1990. I think. Wow. So, mm-hmm. you know, there have been apologies like this before. Um, it wouldn't be the first time this has happened. Right. But let's, but let's talk about it from a moral perspective. Now, I say that when you're in the wrong, morally, uh, as a nation, you should apologize often and sincerely. I think that's the healthy thing to do. Mm. Even if you don't think you were totally in the wrong. Like, let's bring it back to interpersonal levels. If, if I say something that hurts Chrissy's feelings, which, believe it or not, and you may be shocked by this, Ray, I do from time to time. <laughs> no. Say things that hurt people's feelings. My mother calls me Cameron the Blunt. Um <laughs> For example, I was at a birthday party last weekend for one of my nephews and uh, one of my sisters was there, the born-again Christian, and she was telling me about all of her family got all these really quite serious medical problems, ongoing medical problems, her and her husband and her two children. Um, And I said to her, do you ever get the feeling that maybe Jesus doesn't like you? And she said, no. Shit. I said, well... Maybe it's because you keep praying to the white Jesus and the black Jesus. Oh. Middle Eastern Jesus isn't happy with that. that. Yeah. No, he's the one that took yeah. the brunt. White Jesus is, you know, a fake, 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 fake Jesus. You're praying to the fake Jesus. And she got upset anyway. Um, yeah. uh, or, or the other one, my mother came out recently that um, a guy not far from my hometown was murdered in a wood chipper. True story. Uh, oh, by his by his his conspiracy allegedly between his wife and two of her male friends, uh, she got him to sign his new wife got him to sign a life insurance policy and then murdered him in a wood chipper. And this guy who was murdered was my mother's godson. Oh, and I God. said to her, "Here, you, you're not you're not really much of a good godmother, I mean, are you? Obviously, if you <laughs> let your godson get murdered in a no. wood chipper, I think that's on you." Obviously, you weren't she praying sh- hard she enough. She should have been there. Right. Yeah. She said, you don't understand how that works, do you? And I was like, no, not really. Uh, funnily <laughs> enough. <laughs> it didn't work. Anyway, apparently that wasn't a good joke to make. I thought it was funny. I laughed no. for like an hour after I made that joke. I said, you suck as a godmother. Your godson got murdered in a wood chipper? Jesus. Oh, good thing about that, though, is they left his you. legs. Fuck. They left his legs. Uh-huh. She'll tell you the story. When we're over. 
They left his legs. Oh, well, to, they tried to make they tried to make the claim that they that he fell in and they tried to pull him out and his legs came off. Yeah, Anywho. that sounds okay. Now, getting back to me hurting Chrissy's feelings, if I say something and I hurt her feelings, even if I think what I said was innocent, or if she was being mean to me first, I can either dig my heels in mm-hmm. and refuse to apologize. In which case, we're going to have a bad couple of days. And I'm going to be watching right. more porn than usual. Or I can just say I'm sorry and we can move on. Why right. is it but, different between nations? Well, and the other question is why is it difficult for some people and or nations to say the apology? Is it pride? Is it an emotional investment? You want to win the argument? But, but, but and I'm not trying to belittle it, but that does seem to be a hurdle a lot of people can't get over to say that they're sorry. And they don't have to be all that sincere, but you say the words to, for the healing process and maybe you'll get something out of it as well. Yeah. Well, what, what a lot of people say, and again, this isn't only Americans from my recent experiences chatting with people on Facebook. Um, with regards to the bombings um, of both Hiroshima and also Dresden and Hamburg and, and Tokyo and these sorts of things is, well, war is, war is brutal. It's, it's yeah. complete war, right? Total war. Yeah, total war. But that's kind of a bullshit argument as well, and I'll tell you why. So under the 1949 Geneva Conventions, collective punishment is a war crime. Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention states, no protected person may be punished for an offence he or she has not personally committed. Collective penalties and likewise all measures of intimidation or of terrorism are prohibited. Now, I spent a lot of time trying to work out if the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki could be considered collective punishment because you're killing a civilian population for something that they didn't do for the, Mm -hmm. for the, you're, you're punishing them for the actions of the gov, their country's military and political leaders. And I asked on Facebook, does anyone have a serious argument, a sensible argument for why this wouldn't be, considered collective punishment and people jump in and go well they started it i'm going no that's not what i'm asking oh they they were their their armies were brutal no that's not i'm not asking for a justification of it i'm asking for whether or not this should be defined as collective punishment um couldn't find anything in, in the scholarly stuff couldn't find any articles really talking about it um, I noted that in Wikipedia at one point, under the uh, Wikipedia article on collective punishment, mm-hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were listed and then it got edited out um, at some point a few mm. years ago, but without any explanation why. Right. Now, people have said, well, yes, but that wasn't written until 1949. And that's true. But that just means that Collective punishment wasn't illegal according to international law before 1949. Doesn't mean it wasn't immoral. And obviously, if it was written into the Geneva Conventions a mere four years after World War II, (laughs) at least some people living 
at the end of World War Two already knew that collective punishment was immoral. That's why they wrote Article 33 of the right. Fourth Geneva Convention. It was a reflection so, of the war. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't think there's any argument that I've come across that says that the nuclear attacks in Japan, the firebombings of Dresden, Tokyo, and other cities weren't a form of collective punishment as defined by the Geneva Convention. And if they are wrong, Mm -hmm. if collective punishment is wrong, wrong now, it was wrong then, and if the countries who committed them did the wrong thing, they should apologize for them. Now, when I asked this question on Facebook, my old mate Rod Adams, who's a former nuclear submarine um, engineer, I think, uh, old podcaster from the TPN days, did the Atomic Show um, on uh, TPN talking about nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. Top bloke. He wrote the best reply I got, anyway, on Facebook. He said, as I understand collective punishment, it's about holding innocent people accountable for offences committed by others. Large-scale strategic bombing wasn't, in the minds of most decision-makers, aimed at punishing anyone. It was ostensibly a tactic designed to contribute to achieving victory. By the time those actions were taken, the generally accepted definition for victory in World War II was unconditional surrender. Hmm. But I don't think the justification for attacking civilians makes much of a difference as to whether or not it's classified as collective punishment. You can't say, well, we wanted unconditional surrender, so we had to kill a bunch of civilians. Um, So that's a tactic, not collective punishment. Whether or not you think of it as punishment isn't the definition of punishment. Unless you're St. Augustine saying, well, well, listen, we're going to rape, we're going to torture you. Right. But we're doing it out of love because we want you to confess your sins and accept our version of Christianity. Punishment is punishment. Collective punishment has got nothing to do with intent, I think, mm. or justification for it. It's it's um, hurting physically or, or, or emotionally or psychologically a person who hasn't committed a crime, but somebody related to them has committed a crime, which I think is exactly what these quote-unquote strategic bombings were doing. Today, it's a fundamental principle of international humanitarian law that parties to a conflict must distinguish between combatants and civilians and may not deliberately target civilians or civilian objects. Again, Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention is very clear. It says, No protected person may be punished for an offence he or she has not personally committed. Did we have to go through World War II and the bombings for an organization to make that? international law because it wasn't before did we have to do something so horrific that some group of people went okay okay we gotta we gotta put this down that you just can't across the board punish a group of people because of a few select yeah probably but the fact again the fact that it wasn't a law 
until 1949 doesn't mean that it wasn't immoral before 1949. Absolutely. And again... You know, slavery wasn't illegal until uh, after the Civil War. That doesn't mean it wasn't immoral before the end of the Civil War. Did we ever apologize? Maybe we can get Trump to apologize for that. No, I don't think you apologized for that. I don't think we did. No. No. Okay, scratch that. I want to read a review. This is from uh, the United Kingdom. Titus Flavius Silurianus, I know, has reviewed our shows before. Thanks, uh, Titus. Uh, Refreshing. It's an absolute pleasure to hear the Cold War spoken about without the anti-Soviet pro-Western bias I've heard all my life. As in-depth, maybe more so, as it's more recent and there's more information available than the Ancient History podcast, but no less as funny or musical. I must warn you before you subscribe that if you do, there's a very likely chance you'll end up in some government list somewhere. And come World War Three, we, we may all be rounded up into camps, but we can always gather together and talk history. Yeah, I like that. Thank you, Titus. Please send us an email uh, with your address. We'll send you a thank you gift, but we won't do it in a hurry because we're going to be away <laughs> for a month. Um, also, there's going to be a little bit of a gap in the shows because of our trip, um, but uh, we'll be back before you know it. Uh, before we go, I want to thank uh, our recent heroes, the Cold War heroes, uh, mm. Ian Madden, Kevin Lay, Andrew Hoot, Thomas Ross, Tom Vandenbogard, Alfredo Alvarez, Bo Lee, Jeffrey Caldwell, Christian Maas, Michael Jackson, <laughs> Chad <laughs> Clark, Connie Pilcher, Lisa Love, Daisy like Nisbet, that. Alex Jackson, Amy Dormany, Ben Lorimer, Tim Barnard, Fred Ray, Neil Hill, Sean Billings, Brendan Walker, Jared Wilson, David Annis, Brendan Walker, Robert Falado. I just said Brendan Walker twice for some reason. Robert Falado, who's a DEFCON 2. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. John Haggerty, Tim Graham, Brad Frizzell, Erica Chris, Kieran Brant Sordi, Michael Regal, who's a DEFCON 3. Golf clap. Michael. Michael Regal. Christopher Rittenhouse. Jonathan Landy, Trevor Memmott, Kevin Levitt, Nicholas Lord, Bill Kelly, Matthew Buchanan, and Jeffrey Tarr. Thank you. Um, Yeah, thank you all for your support of the show. Hope you're enjoying it so far. And um, now that we've actually got through the atomic attacks... I think it's uh, fairly safe to say, Ray, that we are in the downhill slide of the Cold War now. Look, yes, it's taken us 87 episodes to cover 1945. The (laughs) run-up. The first half of 1945. It's taken us 87 hours to do that. But I feel confident that the next 50 years, we're just going to fucking breeze through. Fucking... Fly yeah, yeah. A, 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 a year an episode from here on in, Ray. We're just going to... Done, yeah. Yeah, all over this yeah. shit. <laughs> if, it, if it helps everybody out there, um, our podcasting skills are equal to our lovemaking skills. Um, <laughs> our, our wives and various people in, in Europe soon will are very happy. I'll ask my mum about that after. <laughs> we'll be back in a few weeks. Take care. Be good to each other. D-back. 
Don't be kind. Have a good An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.